Well, good morning, Eastridge. It is so great to be here with all of you in the room and with you guys who are online. So great being here. My name is Stephanie, and I am the campus director at our South Campus. So it is super fun to be here on the east side of town, hanging out with my East uh, East Campus Church family. Super excited. Yes. Well, this morning, um, we're going to be continuing in our series called Radically Normal where we're learning that when Jesus walked the earth, he was considered pretty radical. And his teachings on how to be reconciled with God and how to best be a human have been considered radical for about the past 2022 years. He is radical. And his teachings are radical. Radical means different far-reaching, out of the ordinary, right? And Jesus is all of these things. Remember his way of uh, looking through cultural categories and seeing people. His mission to rescue those who are far from him, to love his enemies, to bring hope and healing to those who seem broken beyond repair. All of that is radical. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, empowered by his spirit, are called to walk in his footsteps. Radical should be our norm. Because when you and I live radically normal lives, Jesus works through us to change the world one person at a time. I want to tell you a true story uh, just to illustrate this. Rosaria Butterfield was a uh, lesbian professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. Uh, She was heavily involved in the LGBTQ community and movement, and she could not stand evangelical Christians. Out of her compassion for people, out of her love for people, she just thought evangelical Christians we're missing the mark. And so in a big newspaper, she wrote an article uh, uh, just saying how Christians who are supposed to love and welcome others treat those in her community with disdain and with exclusion. And as you can imagine, the response mail started pouring in, response mail that could be put in one of two categories. As she was reading, she'd plop one in that category, plop one in that category. It was either fan mail, like, yes, stick it to the man, you're my hero, kind of mail. Or you are the embodiment of everything wrong in America, kind of mail, okay? So she had these two piles of mail. One letter came in, however, that didn't really fit into her categories, It was from a conservative, uh, reformed Christian pastor. And so she thought she knew the direction that these comments would go. But in his response, he was gracious. He saw her humanity. He even talked about some of the points in her argument that he agreed with. And so... It ended with an invitation to dinner with he and his wife. Now, unbeknownst to him, she was planning on writing a book about how evangelical Christians are basically the worst. And so she thought, 
This is my chance. I'm going to get behind enemy lines. I'm going to see how they live. I'm going to see what they talk about. I'm going to see how they think. And so she accepted the invitation. Well, that night, you can imagine, she pulls up in the driveway, and she is so uncomfortable. But in the name of research, she walks up the driveway. She knocks on the door. And what she found on the other side of that door was nothing short of a cultural miracle. Ken and his wife, Floyd, took into consideration her chosen dietary restrictions, and they only served things that fit in her categories. They knew about her convictions for the environment, and so they lessened all of their electrical usage during that night so that she could be most comfortable. They offered gracious conversation around the meal. They really treated her as a person. And many of her defenses started melting away. I want you to listen to what she says about her experience because this would be a pattern. Over two years of weekly dinners, two years of weekly dinners, she would just come in. And here's what she says. Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world, met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They didn't act as though such conversations were polluting them. They didn't treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate and vulnerable. He repented of his sin. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm and yet full of mercy. Because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be their friend, a friendship without agenda. The threshold of their life was like none other. The threshold of their life brought me to the foot of the cross. To draw a committed unbeliever to himself, God used a simple invitation into a modest home by a humble family who lived out the gospel daily and authentically. What broke down that wall of hostility between Rosaria Butterfield and those seemingly arrogant, judgmental, unloving Christians was a meal. It's so simple. It's radically normal hospitality, and it saved her. So, what do we mean by hospitality? What is that? What are we, what are we asking here? Biblical hospitality is the love of the neighbor and of the stranger alike. It's, uh, in Greek, the combination of two words, uh, philos, which means friend or someone dearly loved, and xenos, which means stranger. So it literally means to treat the stranger as someone dearly loved. To anyone and everyone, hospitality says, you're welcome here. You have a place to belong. In one of her books entitled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield says this, Radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your home, your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors family of God. One more time, to make strangers, neighbors, and to make neighbors 
family of God. And isn't that the need of the hour? Our culture is so divided, so anxious and fearful, so angry and hostile, so lonely. And guys, we believers in Jesus Christ, we have the answer. But a recent Gallup poll found that only 36% of Americans trust the church. 36%. So why should we practice hospitality? In this post-Christian world in which we live, radically normal hospitality is the front line of evangelism. The way that we fight for the kingdom of God is to open our front doors and invite the unbelieving in. We have to change the way we view our homes. And I'm talking to me too. We love to make our homes our comfy place, our refuge, where we can just go and we can chill. We can put on whatever the heck we want to put on. We can just be whatever. We can just turn off our brains and leave the world out there. But God calls us to something else. And look, I believe that there is a time for rest. I believe that there is a time to turn off all the things, to just blah, right? Just chill. The last time I was in this pulpit, I spoke about Sabbath rest. So I believe in that. But listen, not all the time, not every day, right? Y'all with me? Yes. The same root word for hospitality is found in hospital a place for those in need of healing. Our homes belong to God. And as believers, we are called to use our homes or apartments or dorm rooms or front yard or back decks, whatever, and a meal as a weapon against the darkness. And it not only brings healing, but it changes the cultural narrative one person at a time. Because anytime we practice hospitality, we follow in the footsteps of our lavishly hospitable God. Now here's the potentially scary part. Because of our role in representing God, when we don't practice hospitality, we don't tell the truth about our God. When we are cold and distant and apathetic, the watching world sees what they can see. They don't see the invisible God, but they see what they can see. And they think our God is cold and apathetic and distant. But when we're welcoming and we're warm and we're gracious and we see people, we tell the truth about the gospel. Through our actions, we show that he is welcoming, that he is loving, and listen, that he has not given up on them. So many times, guys, and I am, I'm guilty of this, we have awesome intentions. We have these great healing, life-giving words that we want to put out there. So we put them out there on the socials, or we have great messages and wear them on our t-shirts or on the bumper sticker on our car. But outside of real relationship, our culture has hit the mute button on our words. They're not hearing them. They're not reading them. They're not being changed by them. 
outside of real relationship, it falls dead. Butterfield says this, practicing hospitality is your street cred with your post-Christian neighbors. It allows you the right to listen, to be a safe friend, to speak a word of grace into the dark places. In post-Christian Christian, in post-Christian communities, listen, your words can only be as strong as your relationships. Your words can only be as strong as your relationships. I love this. Your best weapon, your best weapon is an open door, a set table, and a fresh pot of coffee. It takes down the darkness, guys. Conversation over a meal and good coffee. And buy good coffee for heaven's sakes, guys. Okay, there we go. So as we think about radically normal hospitality, I want us to see what Jesus, Jesus had a few things to say about this. I want to see what he says about it. So if you have your Bibles with you today, uh, I'd love for you to turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 30. So in Luke 10, we see an expert in the law questioning Jesus on how to inherit eternal life. Jesus has the expert answer his own question, like you, the expert. So the expert says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Y'all can say this, mind, soul, strength, all of that, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yep, that's it. But the expert wants to justify himself. So he asks a qualifying question. Who's my neighbor? Like, exactly who am I supposed to love? So look at this, verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happens to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So this expert of the law would like to define terms, right? If eternal life is about loving God with everything I've got and loving others, then uh, let's just cross all the T's, dot all the I's, and make sure that I'm doing it. So uh, I should love, I don't know, my, my fellow Jew. Yeah, that's someone I can love. That's good. What about, I know, those who share my political views. That's who I should love. Those who share my cultural convictions, that's who I should love. I know those who help themselves, that's who I should love. Rabbi, surely, surely you're not saying that I should love them. Like they just need to get a job. <laughs> they just need to get off the sauce. Stop listening to fake news. Take care of themselves better. Surely not them. You see, throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees and the experts constantly accused Jesus of hanging out with sinners and those who are impure, the unrighteous, loving the wrong people. They were obsessed with preserving their own purity. And from the Old Testament, we do see, we're going to give them a little grace here, we do see that uh, dead things were unclean, right? You were, you were ritually unclean for seven days if you touched something dead. So some commentaries give the priest and Levi a little bit of grace, and here's what they say. They're concerned that if they touch him and he happens to be dead, they're going to be unclean. 
And so they leave him to his suffering. Preserving their ritual purity, preserving their comfort, their convenience at the cost of their obedience to God's law of love. You see, Jesus and the New Testament writers teach that it's not the outside things that defile us. It's not who we have in our homes. It's not who we have a conversation about cultural things with. That is not what defiles us. It's our heart. And Jesus' heart loves the sinner in the midst of their sin. And that's what radically normal hospitality does. Radically normal hospitality loves sinners in the midst of their sin. Charles Spurgeon, my favorite theologian, has a different take on this text. He concludes, listen to this, that these two holy men are coming down from Jerusalem after having served in the temple. They had worshiped God. They had heard his word. They had recalled their story of God's provision and his salvation and his deliverance. They had been as near to God as they could be. And yet, after having been near to God, they left out those doors and they were nothing like him. Nothing like him. They saw a man who was in need of provision and deliverance and salvation and they passed him by. You and I were once dead on the side of the road with no way of helping ourselves. And Christ picked us up. That's the story we remember every single time we gather together for worship. It ought to propel us to live lives of radical hospitality, of loving people wherever they are in the midst of their mess because we were loved in the midst of ours. Look at Ephesians 2. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope, without God in the world. That used to be us. But in love and grace, Christ picked us up right where we were in the middle of our mess and brought us close to him. Look at this. N.T. Wright is a theologian and author, and he challenges what is at stake then and now is the question of whether we will use the God-given revelation of love and grace as a way of boosting our own sense of isolated security and purity or whether we will see it as a call and a challenge to extend that love and grace to the whole world. Listen to this part, guys. No church, no Christian can remain content with easy definitions which allow us to watch most of the world lying half dead in the road. Can't do it. Let's keep going. Verse 33. But a Samaritan... As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. 
The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Radically normal hospitality is practically costly. The Samaritan shared exactly what he had. He was practical. He didn't come upon this guy and think, oh my gosh, I don't have this, 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 and this. He shared what he had. Yes, it was costly, but super practical. Guys, listen, you don't have to break out or even own fine china to practice hospitality. Guys, you don't need that green egg. You don't need that 75-inch TV to practice hospitality. You don't need to put on a show. That's called entertainment. That's not what the Bible is talking about. Radically normal hospitality is practical. Yes, it's costly. It'll cost you time. It'll cost you convenience. That Samaritan took care of that dude all throughout the night. He probably wasn't planning on that. That was super inconvenient. It cost, it'll cost you comfort. It'll cost you future resources. Remember, he said, hey, I'll come back and pay what I owe you. Is it costly? Yes. But at what cost did Christ meet our need? And guys, I just think it'll be worth it when we stand in front of Jesus and he says what you did to the least of these, help me finish it, you did it unto me. It'll be worth it. The Samaritan saw what was within his power to do, and he did it. It was incredibly costly, but he very practically just used what he had. So Jesus asked this question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law said, the one who had mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Who was a neighbor? The priest? The Levite? Those actually charged with caring for and shepherding and looking after those who were in, who were uh, in the in the God's people, right? Were they the neighbor? Mm -mm. Who was the neighbor? It was the Samaritan, a very unlikely hero to the to the audience that Jesus was addressing. Here was a man who should have been completely opposed to the beaten Jew. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Like think of the hate that the Nazis had for the Jews or the Ku Klux Klan had for African-Americans or ISIS has for Christians. Hated. This is an us versus them, can't be reconciled kind of hate that these guys had for one another. Notice. <laughs> In answering Jesus' question, the expert in the law couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan. He said the one who had mercy. The Samaritan should have stepped to the other side of the road. The Samaritan should have had joy in the misfortune of this beaten up Jew. And those who were listening to this parable expected it. And yet, the Samaritan didn't see this long-standing hostility as a boundary to hospitality. Because the next point is radically normal hospitality is boundary 
crossing love. Jesus blows up any kind of us versus them with these hate-shattering words. Listen to Luke 6. It says, but to you who are listening, to you who are listening, this isn't on the screen, sorry guys. I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Listen, do you love those who love you? What credit is that to you? Even the sinners love those who love them. In Christ, we are called to love those whom he loves. And that's everybody. Y'all got me? That's everybody. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what they've done. I don't care what's in their past, what's in their present. Everybody. In Christ, we have to be marked by this kind of hospitality. If you're a Christian, we should be marked by this kind of hospitality, hospitality that loves sinners because Christ loves us. Hospitality that's practical, though costly, simply sharing what we have. Hospitality that knows no social, ethnic, cultural, theological, or political boundaries. So what does that look like? How do you start? Start with introducing yourself to your actual neighbors. <laughs> There's a good start. Start by inviting a neighbor over to dinner. And listen to me, use paper plates. Nobody cares. Start by taking a Gatorade to the homeless man at the gas station. Start by inviting your one to a party. And you've got Christian friends there as well. So they get to know they're not all weird. I mean, some of us are. That guy right there. Just kidding. <laughs> Start by taking care of someone's yard who's not physically able or who's just out of town. Start by asking someone their story and listen. One guy I read said that he simply brings his grill from his back deck to his front yard and he throws on a few extra burgers. <laughs> now y'all might think that is so redneck, but I did not say your weight bench, guys. You hear me? No weight benches in the front yard. All right, listen. Another guy sets up a tent next to the road, like in his front yard next to the road. He calls it Free Coffee Friday. So anyone who drives by is welcome to stop in for a cup of coffee. He has met bus drivers. He has met his neighbors. It's just a time for him, rain or shine, this guy does this, to meet his neighbors and share the love of Jesus. He doesn't even have to say the name of Jesus, but he's sharing love and hospitality. He's being welcome. There are a million ideas. Taco Tuesday, neighbor night, holiday gatherings, national pancake day for heaven's sakes. Host a watch party of a favorite show or a sporting event. Super Bowl is a no-brainer here. A neighborhood cornhole tournament, fire pit and chilly night. Like just use what you have, what you love and invite an unbeliever to do it with you. It's fantastic. And if you hear of a need that you can meet, meet it. And then repeat. That simple, constant hospitality is powerful evangelism, guys. Powerful evangelism. It breaks down walls. It lessens defenses. It's powerful. I love this Alan Hirsch uh, quote. You'll see it. If every Christian family in the world, raise your hand if you're one of those. 
Just seeing if y'all are paying attention. Okay. If every Christian family in the world simply offered good conversational hospitality around a table once a week to neighbors, listen to this, we would eat our way into the kingdom of God. Now that's an evangelism strategy I can get behind. How about you guys? Want to eat our way into the kingdom of God. I love that. Now, one of the scenes that Luke chooses to close out his gospel is of two disciples who are traveling to a village called Emmaus. At the time of their journey, they don't know it's Jesus. He just kind of starts walking with him. They think that he's still dead, that he's in the grave. And when they suddenly meet the risen Jesus, they're kept from recognizing him. He, talk, he goes through the Old Testament. He's talking about um, how the Old Testament talks about him. And they're still kept from recognizing him. Listen, it's when they get to their place, they invite this stranger in. And they provide a meal that their eyes are open. It's precisely in the moment of breaking bread with this stranger that their eyes are open and they see the risen Jesus. Radically normal hospitality is an encounter with God. We miss out on that encounter when we don't practice hospitality. When we let that stranger go on down the road instead of inviting him in to eat with us, we miss seeing Jesus. Don't we want to see Jesus? I do. And parents, listen. You might think that you're protecting your kids by not having certain people in your home. You might think you're protecting them from the influence of twisted beliefs, or moral compromise. But you're keeping them from seeing Jesus work miraculously in lives of people that seemingly it shouldn't work. But they, they see it. When we don't practice hospitality, not only do we miss out, our kids miss out on seeing Jesus do what he does. Rosario Butterfield says that in the process of trying to protect them, you may just be demonstrating that their shameful circumstances, that their sins, their faults, faults and failures are not safe with you either. But when we follow the way of Jesus, when we follow his call to radically normal hospitality, we see Jesus work. We see him. Our unbelieving neighbor sees him. Our kids see Jesus for who he is. And what draws them more than that? To wrap it up, guys, I just want to remind us that Jesus is coming back. I don't know when, but today we're closer than we were yesterday. And tomorrow we'll be even closer. And I know that these guys, our ones, those who we love and we're praying for, they don't know Jesus. There are people who live in your neighborhood who don't know Jesus. There are other parents on your kids' ball teams that don't know Jesus. And that is a fate worse than death. And 64% of them don't trust the church. 
because they're not walking through that door anytime on their own. So how do we reach them? How do we reach them with the very good news that they are known and they are loved and they have value and they can be forgiven and they have a place to belong? How do we reach them? Radically normal hospitality. It's the simplest way to change the world one person at a time. Who was the neighbor? The one who showed mercy. We were once lying dead in the road. And Christ saved us. He picked us up with a hospitality that said, you are welcome here. You have a place to belong. Church, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, we are in awe of you. Thank you that you are welcoming, that you are loving, that you see everything about us and you invite us in anyway. And God, I thank you for this simple way of being used by you to change the world. God, forgive us when we're half-hearted. Forgive us when we see a need and we drop over to the other side of the road and pass by. God, forgive us empower us, remind us to practice radically normal hospitality so that we can show the world our radically hospitable God. And God, you will receive all the honor, all the worship, because you are the only one worthy of it. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. It's in the precious and holy and powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.